You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. We've got some Patch Tuesday notes. Both Microsoft and Adobe were busy yesterday. Foreshadow, a new speculative execution vulnerability, has been reported. Malaysia gets attention from Chinese espionage services. There's competition for jihadist mindshare. Influence operations are used as marketing. The US FBI gets a new cyber boss. The Kremlin thinks the BBC is biased in the crypto wars. And laptop stickers. Are they good, bad, or ugly? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. Yesterday, of course, was Patch Tuesday for the month of August, and both Microsoft and Adobe issued fixes for their products. Microsoft addressed 60 flaws, two zero days among them, in August's Patch Tuesday. The zero days were CVE 2018-8414 and CVE 2018-8373. CVE 2018-8414 involves the use of setting content-ms files. These are Windows 10 control panel shortcuts, and they're used to distribute malware. Signs of this sort of exploitation began to appear early last month, and Redmond has now upgraded Windows 10 so that Windows Shell now validates file paths when setting contents-ms files are executed. CVE 2018-8373 is a remote code execution vulnerability that arises from the scripting engine's problematic handling of objects in memory in Internet Explorer. Among the other vulnerabilities attracting considerable attention is CVE 2018-8340, discovered by researchers at security firm Okta. This one is a security bypass exploit that's made possible when Active Directory Federation Services, that's ADFS, mishandles multi-factor authentication requests. Okta's account of the issue suggests that this vulnerability would be most easily used by a malicious insider interested in achieving elevated privileges or in spoofing another legitimate user's account. Adobe also patched, fixing 11 problems in its products. The breakdown is as follows. Five issues were fixed in Adobe Flash Player, three in Adobe Experience Manager, two in Adobe Acrobat and Adobe Reader, and one in the Adobe Creative Cloud desktop application. The potential impact of unpatched systems exploitation includes information compromise, privilege escalation, arbitrary code execution, and unauthorized data manipulation or alteration. 
There's also been a new speculative execution issue identified in Intel central processing units. A small set of flaws, three of them, are collectively called foreshadow and join the well-known family to which Spectre and Meltdown belong. Foreshadow is in the process of being mitigated. Microsoft addressed some foreshadow issues in its monthly round of patches, for example. In any case, there's no known instance of foreshadow exploitation in the wild, and it would seem unlikely that hackers could easily make use of it to attack systems. There's a company called Upstream that provides mobile device security platforms, especially in fast-growing emerging markets. As their software was being deployed, they noticed some interesting data traffic that caught their attention. Demetrius Manitis is head of SecureD, which is one of their mobile security platforms, and he shares what they found. What was really peculiar is that we started seeing concentration of fraudulent attempts, not on specific apps, but from specific devices, which became even more uh, peculiar when we started seeing a similar pattern in a second market that is uh, totally unrelated to the first. So the, the first market where we saw that was Brazil. Quite literally around the same time, we saw a similar concentration of fraudulent attempts in devices in an, in an operator in uh, Myanmar. These two markets are typically you know, very unrelated. They, they don't share any, any commonalities whatsoever. We went ahead and we purchased uh, a few of those devices to try and you know, get to the bottom of what was happening. We put the first device that we bought in Brazil, we put it in a sandbox. As soon as we powered on the device, quite literally just after unboxing it, we started seeing communications to a third-party server uh, sending information that we identified as being uh, personally identifiable information, like the IMA or GPS location of, of the device, um, to a third-party server in Singapore and operated by Gmobi. Gmobi is a Taiwanese slash Chinese provider of uh, services in, 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 in the wireless industry in, in general, but more specifically, they operate an ad network and they operate a firmware over the air updater. It made us really concerned to see that without having accepted any user uh, agreement, without having opted in to, to use a service by Gmobi, we were uh, observing data from the device being transmitted to that server, and then uh, seeing communications coming back. Now, let me ask you, uh, does it seem as though they're specifically targeting inexpensive phones? For sure, there is a correlation between the two. In, in general, we're really used to the term ad fraud, advertising fraud, especially over digital marketing. And we kind of picture advertisers paying more than they would have had to uh, essentially, part of their investment, part of the impressions or the clicks that they buy are served or are being clicked by non-humans, either a click farm somewhere obscure, some, some weird place, or a bot network might be just generating impressions and clicks to kind of consume the investment that advertisers are making. What we see here is that in this scenario, the end user is actually being defrauded. So it's ad fraud 
taken one step further to charge users only after a single click. If that click is generated by a bot, that means that the user, without having ever given their consent, is being charged for a service or some digital service that they never wanted to buy or never intended to buy. Now, this is essentially an extension of ad fraud that is impacting the end consumer and actually defrauding the end consumer from their prepaid airtime or credits. It is from what you would see as ad fraud, now moving into payment fraud or even financial fraud, because it is depleting the, the prepaid credits of uh, consumers. That's Dimitris Maniatis. He's from Upstream. You can read more about their research into Android smartphones being sold with pre-installed malicious software. That's on their website. Regional influence and economic advantage appear to drive renewed Chinese espionage against Malaysian companies and governmental organizations. A United Nation report suggests increasing Iranian prominence in al-Qaeda networks. This appears to be an emerging trend as Sunni and Shiite strains of jihadist influencers struggle for inspirational mindshare online. You will recall Facebook's removal of some 32 pages that were engaged in what the social medium called inauthentic behavior. They were essentially accounts created with bogus or at least dubious persona that were heavily involved in pushing various inflammatory political memes. Facebook didn't say it was a Russian trolling operation, but it strongly hinted in that direction. The AP talked about this with various academic experts in communications and marketing, and concluded that the Facebook pages the social medium recently expunged were following typical advertising playbooks, with affinity marketing supplemented by a heavy dose of moralistic aversion. The goal is discord, the method rumor, and the amplification is all on the regular people-clicking, sharing, and liking. So nothing new here, but the skills shown by the presumably Russian persuaders is striking. They've also shown a solid understanding of their market, accurately addressing American social fissures. The end game is mistrust. It's not so much that they want you to vote one way as opposed to another. They'd apparently rather you just stayed home, going out only to riot, because elections are, as the troll farmers would suggest, nothing more than a Potemkin village, a puppet show for the goobers. In a generally well-reviewed move, the FBI appoints Amy Hess, Executive Assistant Director of the Criminal Cyber Response and Services Branch. Hess, a veteran of the FBI's science and technology side, is among other things regarded as a crypto wars dove, at least by bureau standards. Elsewhere in the crypto wars, the pro-encryption side has a new champion, or at least someone willing to fly their flag of convenience. Sputnik, one of Russia's Putinist news services, slugging on behalf of the little guy, accuses the BBC of committing fake news by cherry-picking encryption experts who will tow Her Majesty's government's pro-snooping line. And finally, do you have stickers on your laptop? Maybe one of the attractive CyberWire ones we give away to patrons and friends of the show. Motherboard has an article in which they argue that putting a sticker on your device could lead authorities at border crossing sites or airport security checks, for example, to single you out for more attention than you'd like. What's that? Your laptop sticker says TSA stands for Touching Stuff Always? 
Why, step over here to the slow line and please remove your shoes. Or maybe it's got a Macedonian flag on it, and the customs officer at Thessaloniki takes exception and wishes you to answer some questions at greater length. Or the guy in the cargo shorts sees a sticker that says, I break for deep packet inspection, and decides he'll make a run at you over the onboard Wi-Fi. You can tell he's a bad guy because his laptop says, My other computer is your computer. On the other hand, Motherboard does cite some evidence that common criminals tend to leave heavily stickered laptops alone when they break into cars, whether that's because they think they're likely to be encrypted or because they think the stickers drive down the retail value, is unclear. So what do you think? Is this a problem unique to laptops? Or is it like the ordinary risk you run of having your car keyed by someone who disapproves of the candidate whose name is on your bumper sticker? Let us know. To stick or not to stick? That is the question. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Zulfikar Ramzan. He is the Chief Technology Officer at RSA. They are a Dell Technologies business. Uh, Zulfikar, welcome back. Uh, we wanted to touch today about SOCs, Security Operations Centers, and particularly some of the challenges they face when it comes to IoT. Uh, what can you share with us today? Yeah, you know, so I'm reminded here of a movie that came out a number of years ago called Airplane 2. And if you remember, uh, William Shatner, obviously everybody knows on this podcast from his role in Star Trek, played the role of Commander Buck Murdoch in that movie. And there's a scene in the movie where he's looking at the all the switches and controls and knobs and lights that are going off and on inside of his operations center. And in trademark William Shatner histrionics, he has this virtual nervous breakdown about all the events that are hitting him at once. 
We've all got our switches, lights, and knobs to deal with, Stryker. I mean, down here, there are literally hundreds and thousands of blinking, beeping, and flashing lights. Blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. They're blinking and beeping and flashing. Why doesn't somebody tell them I'm all right. I'm all right. And that, to me, personifies what happens in the security operations center already, where people are dealing with events constantly, where they're deluge with a barrage of, of, of noise, if you will. And when you think about things like IoT coming into the fold, all these new devices, they can all generate their own sets of alerts. I think organizations can quickly find themselves in a world where they can no longer begin to reason about what's happening in their environment. And we have to take a really quick set of actions and meaningful and intelligent actions to be able to address that problem before it becomes too much of an issue. So what do you suppose the solution is? Are we talking about automation? How, how, do, you, how do you filter that fire hose of information coming in at you? Yeah, so I think there's, there's a multi-part plan that people have to engage in. The first part of that plan is, first of all, just pre-process your data. The reality is if you just collect data and, and try to use it later without thinking about pre-processing it and identifying the most salient elements, there's a good chance you're no longer going to be able to, to make any kind of meaningful insight out of that data. The reality is you don't want to just stockpile a bunch of food only to have it go rotten while you're hungry trying to find something. The same thing applies to your data. Uh, the second thing is to apply analytics uh, to your data so you can group all these different alerts around attack campaigns. The reality is when attacks happen in organizations, a bunch of alerts are generated. Those alerts are related to a common campaign. If we don't tie those alerts together, there's a good chance that your security analysts will be off in different directions investigating different parts of an incident without realizing there's a common big picture that they need to be considering. And then the third thing is to really focus not just on looking at what's happening in one part of your environment, be able to pivot across what's happening in different elements. So for example, be able to look at what's happening on the network core and be able to then translate that to what's happening at the edge in terms of endpoint devices or IoT or what have you. And even beyond that, can you look at what's happening with your cloud services? Proper security incident response requires being able to trace an incident end to end which in terms means that you, you have to be able to look at all the different elements that are involved in one common orientation. And the fourth piece of advice I have is to really take a risk orientation. Don't just look at the underlying probability that something is going wrong. Figure out what the impact is in the organization. So for example, if you do see two alerts and one alert happens to be on a critical production server and the other alert happens to be on a system whose only piece of important information is the lunch menu for the cafeteria, Clearly, you should focus on the the production server. And as silly as that example sounds, most organizations don't distinguish between incidents. They treat every incident like it's the same. If you can pull in business context into your security operations center to make that intelligent determination about what's really critical, you can go a long way. And then finally, I do recommend automation that you mentioned earlier. I think to me, the linchpin for automation being successful is getting the first few pieces of that equation right. If you can get the first elements correct, then you can start to employ automation technologies to take care of many of the simpler cases, the more obvious cases and whatnot. But to me, the key to making automation successful is to have that inventory up front, to have the right incident response plan initially so that your automation capabilities are, are designed in a way that are going to produce results in a very meaningful fashion. Zulfikar Ramzan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure as always. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.